Vidjodcasts, winner of the Imaginary Nobel Prize for Podcasting, with David Alt, Jen Gupta, Libby Jones, Tim O'Brien, and Mark Perver. The Jodcast, October 2010, Extra Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Mark Perver, and today presenting with me is Jen. Hi, Jen. Hi, Mark. Well done on handing in your thesis. Thank you, yes. I've finally given in my PhD thesis. That's a relief. Uh, When's the viva? I said I don't have to think about it. (laughs) Yeah, at some point there will be an examination. Right. But moving swiftly along, in this edition, Libby Jones puts your questions to Dr. Tim O'Brien, and we give a roundup of your feedback. But first, before that, it's the last of Dave's interviews from his journey around North America this summer. I'm here at New York University with uh, Ronnie Jansen, who is studying high-energy cosmic rays. So, Ronnie, can you tell us a bit about your research, please? Sure. Um, I work uh, mainly on ultra-high-energy cosmic rays, which are the highest of energies among the cosmic rays. And uh, Earth is being bombarded by, by these particles or rays, um, and each can have an energy up to... The, the kinetic energy of a golf ball hit at the fairway. So it's a huge amount of energy packed into one subatomic particle. And they hit Earth about um, one per century per square kilometer. So it's not a lot of these cosmic rays. And there's a huge experiment in, in Argentina where we, we measure these cosmic rays and about 50 or so have been measured at these highest energies over a course of several years. So there's very few data on the cosmic rays. And the <clears throat> one of the biggest open questions in astrophysics right now is where, where these cosmic rays are coming from. They're coming from the solar system, our galaxy, or, or from f- further away. And also what can possibly... Um, generate the cosmic rays in the first place, what kind of process are, are accelerating these particles to such energies, or if there's some exotic phenomenon that produces them somewhere in the universe. Okay, so we've got, there, there are plenty of high energy um, phenomena going on in the universe. You've got gamma ray bursts, AGNs. What's our current thinking for where these things are coming from? So there's uh, many models from where they're coming from, and there's uh, almost every conceivable process have been um, suggested. The, the favorite current model is uh, perhaps uh, in active galaxies, or AGNs, as you say, and uh, other people think that gamma ray bursts might be the source. Mm-hmm. But what we know is that there's definitely cosmological uh, distances they're coming from, so it's not within our own galaxy. It's from other galaxies. And that, I suppose, explains why they've got such a low area. One right. century per square kilometre, that's... Uh... Yes, probably. they're very exotic objects and they've been travelling very far to get here, so there's very few of them, uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, so my own research is, um, has been with uh, galactic magnetic fields, and it's the connection with ultra-energy cosmic rays is that um, we believe the cosmic rays to be protons or perhaps heavier atomic nuclei. So they will be positively charged, and a charged particle traveling through a magnetic field will be deflected somewhat. And so on their course um, to Earth, they will be deflected in our galactic magnetic field, which um, further complicates this... uh, um, the, the the work of trying to figure out where they're coming from exactly. So we can measure them on the sky in without around one degree accuracy. So about the size of the moon or the sun. Mm-hmm. That's the area where we can say they're coming from. But because of the magnetic field, they might have been deflected several more degrees in some in some direction. So in order to say where they're ac- actually coming from we have to have a very accurate model of the galactic magnetic field. And so um, I've applied the magnetic field model um, I and my colleagues have been working on and trying to backtrack the cosmic rays through 
this magnetic field in order to predict where they're actually coming from. <coughs> and there's been a recent claim that among these uh, highest energy cosmic rays, there's an excess that has been measured close to um, the direction of the closest AGN on the sky, which is called Centaurus A. And there's been about 10 or so of these 27 in that sample cosmic rays within uh, about 20 degrees from this, uh, this galaxy. And so what we've been doing now is to backtrack these cosmic rays, the directions, and ask where they should actually be coming from. Mm -hmm. And we found that there, there's a handful of them that could conceivably have been produced by Centaurus A, but uh, the majority is probably not. There's, they have to have some other source. So we find it unlikely that Centaurus A is, a, is the um, source of the main part of these cosmic rays. And there has to be some other explanation. Okay. How are you finding mapping the galactic magnetic field? It's, it sounds like a pretty awesome job. It's, it's a very tricky job because um, the way we usually measure magnetic fields, like the, the Earth magnetic field, is we take a compass and we travel around the surface of the Earth and we get an accurate map of the magnetic field. But we can't do that for the galaxy, so we have to rely on very indirect means to, to understand the magnetic field, which is, for instance, that uh, polarized light coming from outside our galaxy will have their polarization angle slightly shifted because of the magnetic field. So we have to study um, subtle effects in, in, in polarization and try to infer this three-dimensional magnetic field based on the, the, the two-dimensional uh, light we call the sky. So for an astronomer, the, the world is sort of two-dimensional, it's just the sky we have looking at, and, and trying to infer a three-dimensional structure uh, from that is hard. It's in, in fact, it's, strictly speaking, it's impossible, so we have to make um, a lot of assumptions and we have to make uh, sort of, uh, guesstimates and, and models and try to constrain them. And it's been very difficult, so the magnetic field is very, uh, very much an unknown quantity. We know about the rough strength but even, um, even some of its basic structure is still unknown. Um, so, so that's a big problem. So if these vast majority of the events aren't coming from Centaurus A, where else can they be coming from? So it, it turns out that Centaurus A, the location of Centaurus A, is roughly in the same direction of what's called the supergalactic plane, which is uh, a direction on the sky where you have an excess of other galaxies. Um, so you have a long, uh, you have clusters of, of galaxies in, in this direction. So, for instance, if ultra-high cosmic rays are produced sort of by generic active galaxies, AGNs, we would expect more cosmic rays coming from that general direction, simply because there's more matter and more galaxies in that direction. Uh, that that could uh, that's a very plausible explanation for where these are coming from. There's also another something that I've been working on, and it's the um, the fact that we don't know the charge of cosmic rays. Typically, we have belie believed them to be protons, um, but they could very well be heavy nuclei or uh, have a mixed a mixed composition. Some are heavy, some are light, and heavier nuclei are deflected more than uh, light nuclei in the galaxy, in the galactic magnetic field. So we made um, a, a model where we let um, the charge of these cosmic rays, the measured cosmic rays, be able to vary. So they could be protons and heavier up to iron. Um, and we asked, depending um, if is it a plausible scenario that you have only a single source on the sky um, that are producing essentially all cosmic rays seen, all ultra-hybrid cosmic rays, but 
it produces a mixed composition of charges, so that will they will be spread out um, across the sky. And and we found that of the 27 measured by Auger, Pierre Auger, that's the uh, observatory in Argentina, we find that uh, 22 of them could possibly come from a single source if we assign uh, specific charges to each of them. Um, then the, the magnetic field we believe exists in the galaxy um, would have spread these cosmic rays in such a way that we observe observe them across the sky as we do now. But uh, there's a lot of assumptions and ifs going into that model and we need to study it further and, and we're st always constrained by the fact that the, the magnetic field itself is so poorly known. Mm -hmm. But there are advances being made in, um, in uh, galactic magnetic field models, so hopefully this, uh, this is something we could revisit in the future with more data, both in terms of cosmic rays and, and what we know about the magnetic field. Mm -hmm. And what happens when <coughs> this ultra-high energy, this golf ball amount of energy packed into a, a subatomic particle, hits the Earth's atmosphere? Right, so it, it, uh, when it hits, it immediately creates uh, a shower of secondary particles. And uh, they will also have a huge amount of energy in them. And they will go on and hit something else in the atmosphere and, and each create another shower. So there will be uh, uh, one huge shower of billions of secondary particles that will rain down on, on, the, on Earth. And um, subsequently they, they lose energy. And so the, the observatory in Argentina is hundreds of water tanks on the plane. And inside these water tanks there's uh, photomultiplier tubes and um, uh, a detector. So when, when th these tanks are hit by, by the secondaries, you, um, you, you trigger each of these tanks and you can reconstruct, depending on how they each were hit, you can reconstruct the general direction of the original particle. But there's a lot of, um, of course, there's a lot of stuff going on there with the atmosphere and, and things about particle physics we're not really sure of. So that's why we're still uncertain about the, the actual charge of the primary particle coming in. And also the, the exact energy is hard to determine, maybe to about 25% um, accuracy. And also the direction, which is about a degree of the sky, mm -hmm. which, but in a Astronomy is a very poor accuracy. It's a, a degree is a big patch in the sky, mm -hmm. so that's a problem. Yeah. So what's the future then? What does the future hold for <coughs> high energy <coughs> cosmic rays? The uh, there's a, a similar observatory being planned in the uh, northern hemisphere on Earth. So right now, um, this observatory is mainly it sees only most of the southern sky. And uh, if we build it in the north, we'll have a more complete picture. And as data keep coming in, so there's only a few, maybe one a month of these highest energy particles that we detect. And so the a main problem is these poor statistics. And uh, hopefully when, uh, when we have a few hundred of these and a better representation of the magnetic field, we will be able to tell more for certain where they're actually coming from, which means we have a we have a more clear idea about what exactly is producing them in the first place, um, and that that would be uh, that's a solution to a huge mystery from where they're coming from. Well, thank you very much for talking to us on the Judcast. Thank you. I'm here at New York University with Professor Dennis Zaritsky of the University of Arizona. Uh, Dennis, welcome to the welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you very much. And you do a lot of work with uh, galaxy evolution. Could you tell us a bit about that, please? Yes. Well, my main interest is trying to understand uh, whether there's a single unified theory of galaxy structure and formation. Uh, we know they form in dark matter halos, but the tricky part of it is what the baryons do, because the baryon physics is very complicated. And so if you look at numerical simulations, what people have had to do is 
build an ever-increasing level of sophistication, uh, explaining star formation, explaining the winds from stars and how they distribute baryons uh, beyond the galaxy and so forth, to try to reproduce things like the galaxy luminosity function, the size distribution of galaxies, the colors of galaxies, and so forth. And they've had a very hard time being successful, and so they keep adding other factors that they think m might be important. But all those things are not fully modeled. So for example, star formation is done via recipes. Uh, the feedback from central black holes is done via recipes. Uh, and so even if they were successful, you know that the inherent model is not the right model because they just have these very simplified recipes. So we've taken an empirical approach to even just to ask the basic question, should we expect that a single theory explain all galaxies. Is there a reason to expect that galaxies are all some scalable version of each other? They're obviously not direct copies. You can't just say that a galaxy that's 10 times brighter than another is just 10 times brighter. There are changes in size, surface brightness, kinematics that don't particularly scale with that luminosity. So they're not direct copies. But are they in some way scaled versions? And so we've started with one thing we do know about galaxies, which is that they're in variable equilibrium, at least the, the optical parts we see are in variable equilibrium. And we've gone from there, uh, making the simplest assumptions to get to a point where we've, we've made a prediction about how galaxies might scale. And so what we've done is we've, we've actually measured, we've taken measurements that people have provided of their size, their luminosity, and their internal kinematics, whether they're rotating or have uh, random motions that support them. Uh, and then that's it, not made any cuts for morphologies or luminosity or anything like that that we think might be extraneous. And seeing whether we could describe all the galaxies just using those basic three parameters. And in fact, we were able to. Uh, and it's hard to explain uh, without having visual aids, but uh, the the uh, description is similar to what are called scaling relationships that have been known to exist for subclasses of galaxies. So for example, there's something called a Tully-Fisher relationship, which relates the rotation speed of a disk galaxy to its luminosity. There's another one called the fundamental plane, which for elliptical galaxies relates the size, luminosity, and kinematics. Uh, what we have is sort of a super version of either one of those that now describes all galaxies. So it does you can go from the smallest dwarf galaxy known around the Milky Way galaxy to the most massive central galaxy in a galaxy cluster. Uh, that's a luminosity difference of many orders of magnitude, about 10 to the 5, 10 to the 6 orders of magnitude. Oh, well, 6 orders of magnitude. Um, and the, the scaling relationship works. So that gives us confidence, although we don't understand the baryonic processes that, that lead to this, there's obviously some ordered process that that allows one to form all these systems in a very similar way. You can also look at the scatter about this relationship for any set of galaxies, and that'll constrain anything else that you think might be important. So for example, uh, we see that the scatter about this relationship is of order 10 to 20% on any one of these variables. So if you were to think that mergers happen in some galaxies, like ellipticals, and don't happen in spirals, uh, you can't have mergers create more scatter than 10 to 20 percent in, in the ellipticals. So let's say, for example, you think that uh, a merger would puff up a galaxy by anywhere from 10 percent to 100 percent, you know, a factor of 10 variation depending on how the merger proceeded. Well, that would produce too much scatter in what we see. We don't see a factor of 10 scatter among the galaxies. So just having this relationship tells you that there is some overarching order, and the scatter puts constraints on any other process that you might want to think is important, feedback, mergers, so forth. Is there something constraining that scatter actually within the galaxy? Is this, is this some sort of dark matter relationship here? Well, so that, that, yeah, so that's the interesting question. Why exactly is there such a low scatter? And when galaxies evolve, because we do know that galaxies accrete and then merge, and they have black holes that presumably you know, feed back energy into the galaxy. Uh, is there, you know, can we identify sort of a process by which the galaxies just slide along this relationship? Um, and we haven't gotten there yet. 
we we have some very simple models for how baryons might settle into a halo. Uh, those simple models actually do a very nice job of explaining the relationship. Uh, and so then the question is, well, what about all these other things that we know are happening? Uh, and that eventually will have to go to the numerical simulations. Mm -hmm. But if nothing else, this will provide very tight constraints on the processes included in those simulations. And so the, 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 these unique little properties of the baryonic matter that we haven't, or that you haven't been able to, uh, to fit in, is this what provides us with um, spirals, barred spirals, ellipticals, irregulars? This is what produces the huge morphology. Exactly. So there's some... Uh, it, it, yeah, so we don't quite understand it, but there has to be some very re uh, regulatory process that sets these things up. So uh, when the baryons dissipate in the dark matter halos, and the baryons are much more concentrated than the dark matter, uh, there's physics there that says the baryons can't all sink to the center, they can't just stay at large radii. They, you know, they're, they're doing all similar things in all these galaxies, but how that's set up exactly is still a mystery. Okay, and... So you've you've done a lot of work then also with the dark matter component of the galaxies, and could you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. So dark matter has been one of my main interests from the beginning of, of my studies. <coughs> Excuse me. And so starting with looking at the dynamics of satellite galaxies around galaxies like the Milky Way, where we were able to show that the dark matter extends out several hundred kiloparsecs around the Milky Way and around galaxies similar to it. Um, but there's always sort of a nagging worry when you do dark matter studies that you're inferring dark matter because you don't understand the underlying physics properly. That gravity doesn't quite behave the way you think it does. And so when you apply Newtonian gravity to satellites at very large distances, you just get the wrong answer. It has nothing to do with there being dark matter. Mm -hmm. um, there are other reasons to think that, that dark matter exists. For example, the cosmological models work very well with, with dark matter. But you, you still have this suspicion that perhaps something isn't quite right. And so one thing we stumbled upon was this very interesting galaxy cluster, which we termed the bullet cluster, because it looks just like one of those pictures you see of a bullet going through uh, uh, you know, glass or something. It sets up this very nice bow shot. So this cluster has the main cluster, and then you see this little thing with a bow shock in front of it that looks like a bullet going through the cluster. And in fact, that's sort of what it is. A little cluster fell into this big cluster at very high velocities. And when it hit that big cluster, the gas in the two clusters pancakes, basically, it sticks together. The galaxies go right through because, in fact, you know, mostly empty space, and so the galaxies don't interact with each other. And the dark matter will do the same thing because it doesn't interact very strongly with itself. So the gas is in one place, and the galaxies, and presumably the dark matter, if it exists, are in a different place. And that's, for clusters, that's a very nice setup because in clusters, in fact, most of the baryons, about 80 or 90% of the baryons, are actually in the gas, not in the stars. And so if you think that dark matter is an illusion of getting gravity wrong, it should still be centered on the baryons. Whenever you see it, it should be near the baryons. You just have calculated the effect of the baryons wrong. And so we would expect a signal of dark matter around the gas, not the galaxies, because the gas dominates. On the other hand, if you think dark matter is real, then it's gone with the galaxies, and you should see the signal of the putative dark matter around the galaxies. Mm -hmm. Now, the way we measure the effect of dark matter in this particular system is using gravitational lensing. So the light of background sources that are seen superposed on the sky with this cluster, uh, their images will all be distorted slightly. And you can, if you have enough background sources and very high quality imaging, you can actually see that on net, uh, these sources tend to have a tangential orientation around the central source. So they're all sort of stretched like little mini circles around the central source. Mm -hmm. And when we made the map, in fact, the dark matter signal was centered on the galaxies, not on the gas. Mm -hmm. And so this was really the first direct evidence for dark matter that didn't require you to actually calculate what you think the mass is of something. You get the wrong number, you infer that there's missing mass. Uh, this was a direct 
measure that. In fact, the dark matter was displaced from the baryons. That's that's quite a coup, really, isn't it? So it was a very nice result. Yes. Um, and now we're extending that. So this was one system. So, of course, there could be odd things where uh, a lot of galaxies that you know, are scattered before, in front and behind the cluster, and they happen to line up in a funny orientation, giving you some distortion and so forth. So there are very convoluted and constructed cases where you might get the, you know, this answer. Uh, and so we're looking at other clusters. The, you know, these, these models are so convoluted they should not happen in more than one object. And so we're seeing if we see the same signatures in other clusters. And in fact, there's another cluster that another group has looked at that it seems to have the same signature that we found in the bullet cluster. The bullet cluster is, is a very nice example because the, the, the interaction happened right on the plane of the sky. So we're looking at it uh, just as you know, it happened right across the line of sight. Other cases are a little messier. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've now identified three or four other clusters that are, we think are pretty clean. And we have uh, Hubble Space Telescope time coming up uh, with the new instruments. So we hope we're optimistic we'll get a very nice measurement. That sounds incredibly exciting news, <laughs> certainly for the, for the future. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, well, thank you very much for giving us this interview. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here with uh, Professor Andrew McFadgen of New York University, and uh, welcome to the Jodcast. Thank you. So tell us a bit about uh, your high-energy astrophysics. Well, I work on uh, the dynamics of gas that falls into black holes, and one particular thing I'm interested in is the explosion of very massive stars that are observed to explode as supernovae, which are um, associated with gamma-ray bursts. So we think we know the, the mechanics of supernovae. Uh, yeah. uh, we, we've got the, the Chandrasekhar limit and, and everything. Mm -hmm. You've got your type 1s, your type 2s. Mm -hmm. What's, what more is there to study? Well, the, the fact of the matter is we still don't really understand how supernovae explode. And that's a very important question because they're important for many things in astrophysics. Um, in particular, we don't really know how core collapse supernovae explode in detail. And these are massive stars which collapse and we believe emit a lot of their energy as neutrinos. But what, is, what isn't understood so well is how the energy from collapse is coupled to the outer layers of the star causing them to explode. That's an observational fact, but in detail we don't fully understand how that happens. Um, so what I work on is, is actually taking the failure of models to explain the explosions seriously, and I actually uh, consider what would happen if the explosion mechanism failed. And what happens is actually very interesting, and it's not a failure at all. Uh, what happens is the a black hole forms at the center of the star and starts to swallow the surrounding star. Um, and that can be extremely interesting, especially if the star is spinning, because the gas swirls into a disk of material, uh, collapsing very quickly and at high velocity into a black hole, which is a source of a tremendous amount of energy. And we believe that that's the source of energy for gamma-ray bursts, which are some of the expl brightest explosions in the universe, which you can see to the very edge of the universe when stars were first starting to form. So at the center of these massive stars, you've suddenly got a very, very dense object. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what is bringing the, the, the core in. Yeah, the idea is that uh, the center of the star uh, forms a, an event horizon and so the, it's a black hole so the gas that's uh, in the star outside of the event horizon is pulled in very quickly and since it's spinning it has some angular momentum it starts to orbit the black hole and it gradually falls in due to some dissipation in what's called an accretion disk mm -hmm. and this, uh, this process releases an enormous amount of energy uh, which is thought to power these explosions and so the the energy is this from from jets coming out or but that this is what pushes the outer layers of the star away right so what we believe happens is that jets do form uh, mm -hmm. but the source of energy for the jets is is a combination of the gravitational binding energy that's released as gas spirals into a black hole and also perhaps the extraction of the spin energy of the black hole because it's rapidly rotating, and so there's a lot of energy that can be tapped from the spin of the black hole, 
Uh, and since there's a lot of gas surrounding the black hole, which has magnetic fields in it, uh, we think that some of the uh, spin energy is extracted by magnetic fields, which are threading both the ergosphere, the region right outside of the horizon of the black hole, and the accretion disk, and that leads to extraction of ener spin energy of the black hole, uh, which we believe powers relativistic jets, uh, which can escape the surface of the star and, and power a gamma ray burst. We've done it, our models of this using relativistic uh, simulations of gas dynamics with pretty good sets of uh, uh, pieces of the physics included. And we find that, um, indeed, relativistic jets are capable of escaping a star as long as the star is small enough in radius. And so it's roughly the size of the sun in radius. But it's the core of a massive star, so it's, a, it's more massive. It's 10 or even 20 times more massive than the sun, so it's a denser star. Uh, but the prediction would be that when that star explodes, uh, it would make a certain type of supernova, and that would be a type 1bc supernova. So it's a, it's a core collapse of a massive star, but there's no hydrogen in the spectrum. And that's, in fact, that was a prediction, and it's, in fact, been borne out by, by observations. When people look at gamma ray bursts and see the spectrum of a supernova associated with them, and that this has happened several times, uh, they find that the spectrum is, is a type 1bc supernova, as had been predicted. Um, that's necessary because if the star were a supergiant, which would make a type 2 supernova or a giant, uh, that type of star uh, has, is too large in radius, and the relativistic jet wouldn't be able to escape the surface of the star on the time scale that gamma ray bursts last. So, the, so this, it all holds together very nicely. With uh, some supernova, you're left with a neutron star at the end. Mm -hmm. um, I take it the core collapse for that, it doesn't become dense enough to form the black hole that you're, that you're talking about. It's just dense enough to form the neutron star. Yeah, the idea is that with less massive stars, still very massive, but let's say 20 times the mass of the sun uh, when, when, when it's born, that those stars, they do grow a core at their center as the star evolves, but it doesn't grow to the mass that you would need to form a black hole. And so those are, those are smaller mass cores, and it's also thought that because of the structure of the star, that the the mechanism that explodes the stars will be, will be successful, although we don't understand how it operates in detail yet. We think that those stars will be able to eject all of the star outside of the small core, so just leaving behind a neutron star. Um, whereas these more massive stars, which I've studied, uh, have bigger cores, which mm -hmm. are more prone to forming black holes. And where is, what, what are the quest questions you're looking to answer now? Oh, so I'm working on many different things related to uh, uh, relativistic gas dynamics and accretion into black holes. So I'm looking also at binary black holes at the centers of merged galaxies. And one question is whether they can uh, make light before the two black holes merge and coalesce. Um, this coalescence is going to be a, a source of gravitational waves but it's particularly important if you have a counterpart in photons so that you know where and when to look for gravitational waves. Uh, so I'm studying the dynamics of gas as it orbits a binary black hole. So this is called a circumbinary accretion disk. And that gas may slip in between the black holes and be shock and become heated and, and, and might produce a visible counterpart to emerging uh, black hole binary. Oh. All the very best with all of your research. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. That's the last of his interviews now. His summer trip's done and he's back in Britain for the good old British winter. And we can stop being jealous of him. <laughs> <laughs> now, before we move on, we've had some very exciting news here at Manchester University. Not astrophysics, but close. Over in the physics building, Andre Geim and Kostya Novoselov received the Nobel Prize this month for their experiments on graphene, a material made of carbon that can be stretched into sheets just one atom thick. Graphene looks like it could be a very important material in electronics in the future, as it's a good conductor of heat and electricity. And most importantly, it's thin and strong. So in the eternal quest to make computer chips smaller, faster and more efficient, 
it looks like graphene might play a big part and of course that means that we can have better supercomputers to do our astrophysical simulations. That's kind of a Dave link into... <laughs> it's a link. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what they did to uh, create graphene was really cool. They got graphite, which is the stuff that pencil leads are made of, and some sellotape. And so they stuck the sellotape to the graphite and pulled it off to get a layer of carbon that's a few atoms thick and then they did that again they put sellotape onto the sellotape pulled it off and got less and repeated the process until they had just one atom thick sounds like they were messing around in the office to me yeah well andre geim is now i think the only person to have a nobel prize and an ig nobel prize which are the spoof nobel prizes he won it for levitating a frog with magnetic fields very useful experiment yeah well it demonstrates that everything is magnetic it goes to show that you can never really tell what's going to come out of what, which is a great thing about science and why I love being a scientist. And of course, we want to know the most important question, which is, is there graphene in space? Well, naturally occurring graphene, that's a good question. And maybe you should put that to Tim O'Brien, because he's been answering the listeners' questions as put to him by Libby Jones. Our first question is from Millie, and she'd emailed to ask, Hello, we've been studying the theory of relativity in physics for GCSE, and I was wondering whether you could answer my question. Well, Tim is here to answer them for you. Um, the question is, if there were two atomic clocks, one on Earth and one in a spaceship travelling near the speed of light, if the people on the Earth could see the people on the spaceship, would they have the, sa- have the appearance of moving slower, or would they be moving at the same as the people on the Earth, only thinking their clock is slow? Right, OK, so um, good question from Millie. For those who aren't um, British, the uh, GCSEs are exams that are taken by students at school um, at the age of about 15, basically. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is an effect called time dilation, which is more simply said as moving clocks run slow. And I guess the confusion here is that that phrase itself, moving clocks run slow, m- might make people think that it's all just about clocks. So clocks <laughs> sort of tick more slowly. And I think this is the problem that Millie's having, is that she's... Imagining the spaceship whizzing past, and yeah, you know, you'd have to sort of be able to imagine that we could somehow see the people on the spaceship through a window in some sense, um, and maybe see the see the clock on the wall or something that was connected to the very accurate atomic clock. And certainly, if they're travelling very fast, then that that clock will tick slowly. We would see it ticking more slowly than than our clocks on Earth. And of course, it's not just the clocks, it is the people. So the people would be moving around more slowly. Um, if they were moving, you know, sort of as we we looked at them, if they were moving at the same speed as, as we are here on Earth, then they'd be sort of moving super fast relative to their own clocks. Um, so that's not really possible. So uh, they're not super beings. <laughs> so as normal human beings on the spaceship, they would actually be moving, you know, at you know, walking speed of sort of, you know, half a metre per second or whatever walking speed is, um, they would be moving half a metre per second relative to their clocks. So because their clocks are slow, they'd be moving moving more slowly than normal. So, yeah, we do see them move more slowly. I mean, a, a sort of... Often we think of these sort of weird examples that we can't... Uh, you know, it's, there aren't spaceships whizzing fast at almost the speed of light that we can see through the windows and see people inside. But there are real-life examples of, of this effect, and a really good one to think about is satellite navigation. So GPS um, satellites that you, you might have a sat-nav system uh, in a car that you travel in. Um, it turns out because those satellites are moving at uh, you know, reasonably high speed, it turns out those clocks will be ticking more slowly than they should be. turns out they lose about seven microseconds a day relative to clocks on the Earth, which is a measurable amount of time. Okay, seven millionths of a second is not much, but it's an immeasurable amount of time. Um, it turns out that if you don't correct for that um, that time difference, you would get your position on Earth wrong. Now, as it turns out, not only do we have to correct for this effect, time dilation, which is Einstein's special theory of relativity, we also have to correct for a time difference due to his general theory of relativity, which is all about the warping of space-time by by gra- by, uh, by mass. And because these space these spacecraft are above the Earth's surface, they're feeling a different sort of gravitational pull. Turns out that makes the clocks run faster by 45 microseconds per day. <laughs> so if you combine the two, faster by 45 microseconds and slower by seven microseconds, you, en- you end up with these clocks on board these spacecraft moving ticking faster by um, 38 microseconds a day. And if you didn't correct for that, 
you would gradually accumulate more and more errors in your position in your sat-nav on your car at the level of 10 kilometres a day. Wow. So, so this, is, <laughs> this is a significant effect. So, you know, you really do have to use both time dilation in special relativity and gravitational uh, effects in, in general relativity to correct for clock speeds. Otherwise, even your car satellite navigation would be, would be, would be useless. Wow, can you imagine how many people are getting lost if these weren't corrected then? Yeah, it's bad enough with normal sat now, but it'd be even worse with, uh, with if you didn't correct for relativity. Our second question is from Rupin, and he says, is there a limit to how much matter a black hole can suck up? I guess there's a, there's a, I always worry when people worry about, think about black holes sucking up material, um, because I always think that in, in your, in your head, there's this picture of, of the black hole as some sort of cosmic vacuum cleaner that races around space, hoovering things <laughs> up and sucking everything into it. Um, and I think this is the wrong picture, of course. Um, so, so it doesn't really suck things up. It does have gravity. And things, if they were just sat there in space, they could fall into a black hole. But mostly things are moving, so things are often orbiting black holes. And that doesn't mean that they just immediately get sucked up. And my, my classic example is turning the sun into a black hole. If you just turn the sun into a black hole now, the Earth wouldn't get sucked into it. Um, we wouldn't just get hoovered up immediately by the, by the sun turning into a black hole. Uh, we would continue to orbit it just the same as we, as we do currently. It would get dark in eight minutes' time, and we would all die, but we wouldn't get, we wouldn't get sucked into the black hole. Um, so, bearing that in mind, and answering the question, is there a limit to how much matter a black hole can suck up? Well, if we could sort of feed the black hole and keep feeding it, um, then I don't suppose in principle there is, there is, there is really any limit, except that in practice, um, when we look around the universe and we try and find black holes, um, the biggest black holes, the most massive black holes we find, are in the middle of galaxies. So we think a lot of galaxies have these supermassive black holes at their cores. In the middle of our galaxy, in the middle of the Milky Way, we think there's a black hole. There's good evidence for that by looking at the motions of stars around the black hole in the middle of our galaxy that seems to put its mass at about 4 million times the mass of the Sun. So this is a pretty massive black hole. Okay, There are other galaxies, uh, active galaxies, quasars and so on, where it looks like the mass of the black hole might be as much as a billion a billion times the mass of the sun, so a thousand million times the mass of the sun. But there's some evidence that the most massive black holes in these galaxies are only about maybe 10 billion times the mass of the sun. Now, it seems that perhaps that as an upper limit, that probably comes because uh, you've got to keep feeding the black hole to make its mass increase. And it looks like perhaps as the black hole gets more and more massive, maybe what happens is the, the region of space, the sort of swirling matter that's falling in towards the event horizon of the black hole, that's getting very hot as, as stuff falls in towards it. And maybe that actually acts as a sort of a switch that switches off the, the feeding process, that turns off the, the way in which we actually add mass to the black hole. Maybe that would actually provide a natural upper limit to the mass of a black hole of about 10 billion. And just while we're talking about black holes, I should say that we here we're talking about black holes getting more and more massive as they feed. Actually, if you go to the other end of the scale on black holes, if you go to small black holes, um, they actually shrink. So black holes actually shrink rather than grow. Uh, and the reason is because of something called Hawking radiation that you might guess is named after the famous physicist Stephen Hawking. And he realised, oh, it must be more than 30 years ago now, I guess, early 70s, um, that actually it was possible if you allow for this uh, quantum mechanical effect of producing particle-antiparticle pairs out of the vacuum, so you might produce a positron and an electron, if you do that near a black hole, then what can happen is that one of these particles can fall into the black hole and the other particle can escape. So instead of sort of um, a black hole effectively... Um, being, being black completely, the region around the, the event horizon can actually have this radiation um, glowing from it, you know, particles uh, coming from the region around the event horizon. That actually results in energy can't come from nowhere, so it sounds like we're cheating and we're not conserving energy here. It turns out that that uh, results in the mass of the black hole decreasing, so as it sort of radiates away energy through Hawking radiation, it actually shrinks uh, and its mass goes down. Um, it turns out that for most black holes, the, the lifetime 
um, if you allow for all this sort of losing mass due to Hawking radiation, is vastly longer than the, the age of the universe, so we don't have to worry. But for small mass black holes, then the, their age might be about the age of the universe. And it turns out a black hole of mass, um, about a million, million kilograms, so that's a one followed by 12 zeros, has a lifetime that's about the age of the universe. Does that sound like a very massive black hole to you? It sounds very, very, very heavy. <laughs> so it does. So, so a million, million kilograms million. sounds like a big number. But actually, it turns out, I was just working out some numbers first. Ooh, thinking, what's what a million, might... million kilograms? Yeah, so a million, million kilograms is about the mass of, if you can get a body of water that had, um, that was a few kilometres across, right? A volume of water that was a few kilometres across, that ha- that would weigh, that's mass, would be about a million, million kilograms. Wow. So it's actually just the, the mass of a small lake, really. So it's not a very huge mass on astrophysical terms. And it turns out, you know, if that were a black hole, if one could take that and turn it into a black hole, you'd have to squidge it down to a to a size that was only about um, 10 to the minus 15 metres. Now, that's sort of a very small number, very tiny fraction of a metre, about the size of an atomic nucleus. So you take this small lake, squidge it down to be the size of an atomic <laughs> nucleus, you've got a black hole of that mass, and its lifetime's about the edge of the universe. So those things would be dying now, effect- effectively, evaporating now, as we say. And they should be, uh, we might even be able to see them by, by a sort of flash of, a little flash of gamma rays as they wink out of existence, basically. Um, but yeah, so black holes, looks like the biggest black holes maybe. 10 billion solar masses, probably because somehow the way in which they're fed is is being switched off. Somebody's cutting off the food supply. Um, but small black holes actually shrink naturally by Hawking radiation and evaporate and disappear in a puff of gamma rays. Wow, the life and death of black holes. On to our next question, which is from Jerry. And he wrote in to say, If the universe had originated at a single point with the Big Bang, and it had been expanding ever since, then should it not simply be an expanding spherical shell, rather than essentially continuous mass. Also, although there are slight variations in the cosmic microwave background, shouldn't there be a definite thermal gradient across the universe as a result of the expansion? There's a problem here in the sense that it's it's a sort of misunderstanding about the Big Bang, really, which is that saying if the universe originated at a single point with the Big Bang, I think that's a confusing thing to say, actually, because it does lead to this sort of a picture that there's a there's a single point that one could sit outside, look at from a distance. Everything expands from that point, and he's in, in this case his interpretation is that you would see the universe as a sort of this expanding spherical shell of material moving away from this point. Um, clearly, the universe isn't like that, and in fact, the problem is that the universe, in a sense, didn't begin at a single point with the Big Bang. It, the, the the Big Bang happened everywhere in the universe, so we might have. I would, you know, encourage you, Jerry, to think about it as imagine that the universe might be infinite. Hard to imagine, maybe, but it just goes on forever. I sometimes think it's harder to imagine that the universe might be finite and have an edge. That's a bit harder to imagine because what's outside it? But that's perhaps for another question. But let's imagine for the moment that the universe is infinite, goes on forever, and that you think of two points within the universe. Uh, they might be two galaxies, let's say, and then you sort of wind back the clock and they come closer and closer together until um, at some point in the past those two points are at the same point but then you've got to think of another two points think of another galaxy even farther away than the than than the first pair and think about those points shrinking back together again and you could do the same out for infinity effectively with larger and larger distances between the points and just shrinking them all back down but as soon as you imagine that and then imagine the big bang happening from that point where all these points were together then you're inside that universe um, there's not a single spherical shell you're not looking at it from the outside you're inside this potentially infinite universe and then you still would have this continuous distribution of matter albeit the dense the average density of that matter is going down and down as the universe gets bigger and bigger and i think the same um, the same point really answers um, you know his second comment about shouldn't there be sort of a temperature gradient you know the temperature gradually changes across the universe as a result of this expansion. Well, once you sort of realise um, that, you know, the Big Bang happened everywhere in the universe as we see it now, um, then I think you realise that there shouldn't then ob- there shouldn't then obviously be no difference between one point in the universe compared to another point in the universe. The conditions, you know, way back then or at the time of the Big Bang would be the same because they were all effectively in the same place and they've just sort of spread farther apart now. I hope that answers his question. <laughs> uh, that's, 
I was just hoping for another current bun example so I could get more cake <laughs> jogcast pubs, uh, which was really, really delicious, by the way. <laughs> I missed out on the uh, on the cake. On the cake. The infinite cake that was brought to Jod Pub. Yes, oh, it was Lord. a very good cake. <laughs> so, please more cake questions. And the final question this month is for Marie. And Marie says, like lots of people, I'm really intrigued by the newly identified planet in the Goldilocks zone of the star Galice 581. I have a few questions. I have read that the planet is considered to have enough gravity to hold an atmosphere. How do we know if this planet has gravity and or an atmosphere? How far away from its sun is the planet? What would it be like on a planet which has a 37-day orbit? Which general direction in our night sky is this star system? I know I can't see it, but I just want to know which way it is. Oh, and how old is the planet? Okay, so I think Marie's obviously hoping that by bringing in the uh, the infinite current cake to the to Jod Pub that gets her free questions, <laughs> or, or however many questions there are. Here. There's four, a fair few. Yeah. Okay, at least they're all on the same topic, so we'll go for it. Yeah, I mean, this was a really uh, exciting uh, result just just recently, which is obviously in this general area of finding planets around other stars, which is a big uh, big topic of research in astronomy these days. So this is this is actually from the Lick Carnegie Exoplanet Survey, which is a paper that was published by Stephen Vogt et al. recently. And what they've done is they've come, but they've took basically eleven years worth of observations of uh, what are called radial velocities, which is where they are measuring um, the motion of this star around which this planet and others are orbiting, um, and they can measure the, the the shifts in the positions of lines in the spectrum of the star uh, to ridiculous accuracy. I mean, it's amazing uh, what's what's possible with these sorts of instruments. Um, and actually, the data that they were presented in this paper was taken with the Keck uh, telescope on Hawaii. Now, the period of the uh, planet is uh, is 37 days, as she mentioned. So that's, if you sort of compare that to... Um, uh, the periods of planets around our sun. You know, our period is about 365 days. Period of Mercury is about 88 days. Um, so the period of this planet of 37 days is quite a short period. That puts it much closer um, to its sun, um, its star, if you like, than we are uh, to our sun. It's actually at a distance of about um, a seventh or so of an astronomical unit, which is about a seventh the distance between the Earth and the sun. So it's much closer to its sun than we are. Um, its sun is its star is is actually not as uh, massive as our sun. It's about a third the mass of our sun, which makes it rather fainter. But when we uh, measure the properties of this planet, what we're doing is we're sort of looking at how this star wobbles. So you, you're probably aware that um, um, you know as planets orbit the sun. If you were if you were at school, you might have been told the sun stays still. Um, and the planets all move around it, what actually happens is that they all orbit a common centre of mass. So, in fact, the star at the centre of the system is wobbling um, in sympathy with the sort of motion <laughs> of the planets around it. Um, much smaller wobble um, than, than the sort of orbit of the planets, but all the same, it wobbles, and we can measure that with these shifts of these, these Doppler shifts of these lines in its spectrum. Um, if you... Think about the the fact that it's the gravity of the planet that's causing the sort of sympathetic wobble of the star. Um, then, uh, because the planets are much uh, less massive than the, the, the than the star, then they cause a, a very you know relatively tiny motion in the star. When you use this technique, because we don't really know what the inclination of the orbit is relative to us, we don't know whether we're sort of seeing it more edge on or more face on then all these measurements give us a sort of lower limit on the mass, a minimum mass um, for the planet. And it looks like the, 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 the minimum mass for this planet is about three or four times the mass of the Earth. So, of course, one of the things we're interested in here is finding planets like the Earth, because if you're excited about whether there's life on other planets, you might want to find a planet like the Earth. So here's one that's getting like the Earth in terms of its mass, at least taking the fact that we've got the lower limit on the mass here. Um... But the other thing about life, looking for life on it, is is it going to be too hot? Is it going to be too cold? And this is where this Goldilocks zone comes in, because <laughs> anybody who knows the Goldilocks furry story knows that Goldilocks was was eating porridge and the, you know baby bears porridge and mummy bears porridge and so on. And one one some porridge was too hot, and some porridge was too cold, and then she found the porridge that was just right. Um, so in this case, um, is the position of the planet in a position where it's neither too hot nor too cold, and in fact you can have liquid water, for example, which would perhaps make the planet 
uh, habitable in the same sense as the Earth is habitable. And it looks like, although this planet is much closer to its star than we are to the Sun, because this star is not as massive as, as our Sun and therefore not as hot uh, and bright, um, it is actually in the Goldilocks zone. It is in the habitable zone for for this star. So it could well be habitable. Um, now, actually, Marie asks questions about, she says, is the planet uh, considered to have enough gravity, gravity to hold an atmosphere? How do we know it's got gravity and or an atmosphere? Well, we know it's got gravity because it's got mass. So anything that's got mass will have gravity. We can estimate its mass from the amount of wobble in the star. So that, So actually, our feeling about... Um, it having gravity, we we know what its mass is. That would give us a feel for its gravity. In terms of its um, surface gravity, if you were walking about on the surface of this planet, you'd want to know how hard you were pulled down to the ground, and it would be that force that would tell you whether it could hold onto an atmosphere or not. Is the gravity strong enough to hold on, onto an atmosphere like the Earth's is, or is it not high enough? So, for example, like the Moon, its, its atmosphere would leak out into space, basically. Well, Depending on what you assume the composition of the planet is, it looks like it's gravi the gravitational acceleration at its surface is just a little bit more than that of the Earth. Maybe between about, maybe not more than about twice that of the Earth. About the same to about twice that of the Earth. So, so yeah, we've got a fair idea what the gravity of the planet would be, uh, and therefore we think it could hold on to an atmosphere. We don't know that it has got an atmosphere. Probably does, because it could probably hold on to it. We don't know that it has. The atmosphere could well be studied if it were able, if it turned out that it passed in front of its star. Now, I'm not sure that this is the case in this particular example, but it is the case in other examples where if you can get an eclipse where the planet passes in front of the star, in between us and its star, then we can actually see the light from the star as it passes through the atmosphere of the planet, and we can actually work out what the atmosphere is made of. So, in this case, we believe it probably would have an atmosphere. We don't know anything much about that at the moment. She asks. Uh, she's asked how far away it is. Well, we've covered from its from its star. We've covered that. What it would what would it be like on a planet which has a thirty seven day orbit? Well, the year only lasts thirty seven days, so that's one difference. But the really weird thing about this is that it's actually looks like it's actually close enough to its star for it to be tidally locked, which means that the same thing would have happened to it as has happened to the moon in its orbit around the Earth. So you'll know that the um, the moon only presents one face towards us. So we always see one side of the moon. We see the same pattern of light and dark on the moon every night when the moon's up. Um, we don't see the other side of the moon, the so-called far side of the moon, not the dark side of the moon. It's the far <laughs> side of the moon. Um, and that's because it's basically the tidal forces, the gravitational forces between the Earth and the moon, have locked it so that one face is always towards us. We think that will have happened for this planet it's so close to its star. So one side of this planet will always be facing towards the star and the other side facing away. So one side will always be in daylight, the other side will always be in the dark, which is a pretty weird um, place to live. Um, one side will be hot, one side will be cold. Um, and I guess, you know, I imagine that people would be, if there were anybody living on it, they'd be all clamouring to live somewhere near the, the Terminator, the sort of <laughs> region between the, the hot bit and the cold bit, and maybe they could travel between the two relatively easily to get a bit of a break from the... And go to lock zone on the planet itself. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I mean, it may well be that there's a, there's a sort of habitable zone on the planet that's near that sort of uh, Terminator between the dark side and the light side. So an interesting place. Um, the temperature, well... You can sort of work out what the sort of equilibrium temperature on the planet would be by sort of thinking about how far away it is from the star, thinking about how much energy gets absorbed, how much gets radiated away, and work out a typical average temperature. That turns out to be relatively cold, sort of about 50 degrees Celsius below zero. Mm. So now that would be chilly, right? <laughs> but but um, even on the Earth, our equilibrium temperature should be about 20 degrees below zero. And clearly it isn't. It's warmer than that. It's maybe 10 degrees or so above zero on average. So why is that? Well, it's because we've got a greenhouse effect operating. So the atmosphere is like a nice warm blanket that keeps the, keeps the Earth warmer than it would otherwise be. And probably there'd be a similar sort of greenhouse effect operating on this planet. So, pro so in fact, it's likely that it would be warmer than that, than that estimate. So, so we do think that it would be conditions might be reasonable despite all these weird things. We don't know whether there's life on this planet. It could be habitable. It looks like the conditions are habitable. We haven't found life, despite, you know, some of the sort of 
ways in which some of this was reported in the media, which gave the sort of impression <laughs> that we were almost sure there was life on it. We're not. We're certainly not sure about that. Uh, another question, how old is the planet? Well, hard to tell how old the planet is, but we typically would think that the planet would be about the same age as the star. They probably form in the same sort of process as the star forms. And it looks like, from various properties of the star, it looks like its age might be about 4 billion years. Um, so, you know, it's not too dissimilar to the Earth, which is about 5 billion. Now, finally, what direction is it? Is it in the night sky? And she says, I know I can't see it, but I just want to know which way. In terms of whether you can see it or not, you couldn't see it with the unaided eye. Its brightness, for those of you who know the astronomical systems, its magnitude is about 10.6, which makes it about five magnitudes fainter than the faintest star you can see without a telescope or binoculars. So that makes it about 100 times um, fainter than what you could see with the unaided eye. But you could see it with a telescope. Um, and maybe a reasonable pair of binoculars. It's actually in the constellation of Libra. Now, for those of you who are uh, astrologically inclined, I'm sure there's, I'm sure we don't have too many of those in the Jobcast listenership. Oh, I can't imagine who would be what who know where Libra is. <laughs> but, um, but Libra is a is a is a a zodiacal constellation. The sun does go through uh, does go through Libra. At the moment, it's just to the left of the sun. So Libra is just to the left of the sun. So the sun's just set at the time we're recording this here, or just about to set at the time we're recording it here in the Jodcast studio. Um, and so Libra will just be setting just after the sun at this uh, at this time of year. So it would be possible to look it up. And if you're really, if you're really interested, it's at a right ascension of 15 hours and nine, 19 minutes and a declination of minus 7 degrees. But it's just to the left of the sun at the moment. So it might be worth looking out for if you've got a little, a little telescope. Well, a good excuse to go to your local astronomy club. Yep, that's absolutely. That's where that's where Gliese five eight one is with its little family of planets. Well, I think that's all the questions answered. So, would like to say thank you to all the listeners for writing in their questions, and also thank you for Tim for answering them. Thank you for that, Libby and Tim. I love the way that Libby is always just so amazed by Tim's I know, answers. I know, and one of the questions that she was amazed at last week was the explanation of the universe expanding the analogy to fruitcake and someone else who was very impressed with that answer was our listener Reesey Pie, Reesey Pie on Twitter. Reesey Pie is obviously not her real name. She um, actually made us some currant cake and brought it along to Jod Pub, which was amazing and you missed out. Which I missed out on because I was finishing my thesis. And there was cake. And I understood that all the cake was eaten by the time I submitted. Yeah. And Mark, you do like your cake. I do. I could eat a whole one all to myself for future reference if anyone's listening. <laughs> so thank you to everyone who came to Jod Pub. It was a lot of fun to meet some listeners, especially the two listeners who had only started listening that week. Yeah, good start. So hello to everyone who came along and hopefully we'll be doing another Jod Pub maybe by the end of the year. I think we're allowed at least a trip to the pub every couple of months, aren't we? Yeah. I don't think we'll get another Jodcast live in this year, so we can have a Jod pub as consolation. And now, Jen, I think you've got one more odd and or end for us. <laughs> yes, before we go into feedback. Back in the February Extra show in 2010, earlier this year, we reported on a strange object that had been seen in the asteroid belt and had first been seen by ground-based observatories and then imaged with the Hubble Space Telescope. It was seen to be like this X shape followed by a tail, which made people wonder whether is it an asteroid, is it a comet, is it an asteroid collision? No one was quite sure what it was. So since then, a team of astronomers led by someone at UCLA have been monitoring it with the Hubble Space Telescope. So they've taken a series of images and they found that it is the result of an asteroid collision. And in these photos you can see that the X shape kind of dissipating and, and going away because it was formed somehow. They're still not quite sure how, but when these two asteroids collided, they formed this, this X shape, and then obviously now it's just kind of breaking up and, and going away. So it's it's quite interesting, and if you keep on observing, you can then make a model to fit what you see and then work that backwards to see what actually happened in the collision. So hopefully... This will help us to understand asteroid collisions in the asteroid belt because they are quite common. But this just... is a really d- dynamic system, isn't it? So is that just a lucky find? It, it must just be a lucky find. I mean, they happen a lot, but obviously we're not monitoring the whole thing. So they think that this asteroid collision actually happened in February or March of 2009. So actually a year before it was first seen. 
but obviously now it's already breaking up quite a lot. So the chances of, of finding one must be quite small. It's nice to see all this research going on into the mechanics of our own solar system just in the backyard, really. Yeah, yeah. It's good to remember that there's a lot of interesting stuff that we still don't know about our own solar system, let alone the rest of the universe. Mm. So now we go on to our feedback section. Jen's been looking at the emails you've sent in. Yeah, we've had a few emails this time. I think people are still responding to mine and Dave's plea about feedback. Thanks to John Thomas, who says the only thing wrong is that your excellent show is the only regular space science podcast from the UK. So that's a very nice thing to hear. Maybe some more people should start up and then John won't be lacking in UK-based astronomy podcasts. Also, thanks to H3RNE, who is down the road in Manchester, who says astronomy by astronomers makes it authoritative and crunchy. I assume crunchy is, is a good thing. Uh, yeah, I like my astronomy crunchy. Yep, thank you for your, your email. Apparently I have the best giggle. Uh. Aww, <laughs> thank you. And also Ken at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, who heard my idea to get a signed copy of the Hanny's Verwerp comic. And Chris Lintot is actually over in the Adler Planetarium working there for a year, I think. And so Ken has mentioned this to Chris and maybe I'll get a signed copy. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We've also had a bit of feedback from someone saying that we speak too quickly, which I know is quite often a problem for us. I think because the Jogcast team members don't tend to get to talk to each other too much anymore because we're so spread out. When we record a show, it's often an excuse for us to have a catch up as well. And we're sometimes maybe a bit excited. So please do get in touch with us if we're speaking too quickly or there's too much jargon, there's too many words you don't understand. Please get in touch and let us know because we, we strive to please, but also get in touch if you think that we're doing it right, because that's nice to know as well. And on the forum, thanks to Coconino, who provided a couple of corrections to Ian's night sky section. Altair, the star Altair, of course, is in Aquila. Ian says Altair is in Aquila pretty much every single month, but this time he put it in Aquarius by mistake. And also, when talking about the Orionid meteors, he said they would be travelling about 41 kilometres per hour, that's uh, not even going to break the speed limit on most roads. It's actually about 41 kilometres per second, I think he meant. So thank you for pointing that out. And thanks also to Camellia89 for getting in touch as well. Over on Facebook, Andrew Oliver has been asking for a good beginner's astronomy book. On The Last Night Sky, Ian Morrison actually recommended a book at the beginning, which is Turn Left at Orion by the Vatican astronomer Guy Consomango and Dan M. Davis. So there's a possibility. I don't know, Mark, I don't know if you've got any. I will try and think of one for next time. <laughs> well, Ian Morrison has written some books as well. And if any of the listeners have any recommendations, go onto Facebook and put them on there or email us and we'll pass that information on to Andrew. So on Twitter, we've been a little quiet ourselves, forgetting to tweet that the October episode was out so thank you to Pradex for pointing that out and uh, getting us to rectify it. So if you want to get in touch you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net On the forum at forum.jodcast.net On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast On Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook And on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast So that's it for the October Extra Edition Thank you to Ronnie Jansen, Dennis Zeritsky and Andrew McFadden for the interviews. So all that remains to say is until next time, jod on. Bye everyone. Bye.